The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Since 2017, Mary Morgan and I, at the LSE, have been working on how the UN measures development. And we noticed that the UN has gone from defining and measuring development with their Human Development Index that started in 1990 to progressively defining and measuring poverty. So this got me thinking. How do we define poverty in society? What do leading scholars say about defining poverty and the need for measurement? How easy is it to get to a consensus? And how do we measure it? And as a result, combat poverty? And do we even need a definition of poverty? So I started where most people start. I searched defining poverty. And the top results were defining poverty, extreme poverty and inequality by the GSDRC, Then there's an article on the UNESCO website. Then there's an Economist article, Measure by Measure, that starts, most people have an inherent sense of what it means to be poor. But choosing a definition is much trickier. Is poverty an absolute or relative condition? What is a decent standard of living? Then there's the poverty.ac.uk website, which is a website for the project called Poverty and Social Exclusion, a UK-based research project. They write on their webpage, Definitions of Poverty, that definitions of poverty really matter. They set the standards by which we determine whether the incomes and living conditions of the poorest in society are acceptable or not, and are essential for determining questions of fairness. From these definitions follow all actions to help the poorest. On the same webpage, there's a video called What is Poverty? It starts like this. Well, I like to define poverty like the incapacity of a household or a person to satisfy its human needs. The distinction between needs and wants is that if you don't have what you want, nothing happens, you are not damaged. When you lack what is required for satisfaction of needs, you are damaged. You don't have enough food, you are undernourished. You don't have enough shelter and heating, you might die from low temperatures, and so on. The voice you just heard belongs to Julia Botvinnik at the El Colegio de Mexico. So his definition of poverty is when you lack the things you need, basic nourishment and shelter. Emerita Sen, a Nobel laureate of economics and most famous for his book on development as freedom, has a slightly different perspective. Here he is in an interview in 1999. The very basic thing which leads to social change and progress is ultimately individual freedom. But individual freedom, of course, is also um, conditional on certain social opportunities being available, political opportunities, economic opportunities. And my claim is that, that uh, the freedoms of different kinds complement each other. 
Sen's claim here is that poverty means you lack individual freedom, and so according to his thesis, development is unlikely to happen. In a later book, An Uncertain Glory, published in 2013, Sen, along with Jean Dries, argue that despite high growth and many achievements since independence, India's economy still has a large population living in poverty. For example, many people don't have a toilet or access to basic medical care. There's a lot to worry about, say Dries and Sen. Ultimately, they argue, we should judge the quality of life, which is whether people have the freedom to do what they want. Patience is a minor form of despair, disguised as a virtue. They repeat in the book, over and over. They want change, and that means that India needs a better understanding of what is still to be done and what is making people lack individual freedom. Essentially, we need to know what poverty looks like and how frequent it is. But before we go into how 20th century international institutions like the UN and the World Bank have defined poverty, let's go back to the beginning. What are the earlier definitions of poverty? In the 18th century, Adam Smith and Thomas Malthus debated poverty and the poor, concluding to some degree that poverty and starvation was necessary for population control, as cited in Glenishton's introduction of his book 100 Years of Poverty and Policy. He agrees with many other scholars who study the history of the concept of poverty and its measurement that Charles Booth and Seabom Roundtree were the first two to attempt to identify a poverty line, below which people are considered poor, and to measure the percentage of people below that line. These scholars emerged in a time when society was questioning whether all poverty was self-inflicted, and whether the government could really pay all the subsidies owed to poor people under the poor laws. There was prolonged unemployment in Britain in the 1880s, and there was a cotton famine in Lancashire. A powerful pamphlet published by the Congregational Union, The Bitter Cry of Outcast London, an inquiry into the condition of the abject poor, published in 1883, sparked widespread attention in the middle-class magazines of the time. Charles Booth wondered whether these images of extreme poverty in London were an exaggeration. He therefore conducted a house-by-house survey in East London, which was first reported to meetings of the Royal Statistical Society. It was extended to most of inner London. The accounts of the economic life of each area, the temporary nature of much employment and the low wages even regular employment could generate presented a convincing and much publicised picture. It was not just an attempt to measure the numerical extent of poverty, but a mapping of the gradations of human inequality. It was grounded in the local economy of small areas of London. C. Balm Rowntree then wondered whether Booth's conclusions would hold up outside of London. He specifically looked at his hometown, York. Rowntree also used a house-to-house survey method. However, unlike Booth, he based his poverty line on nutritional needs. Glenister guesses that Booth based his poverty line on school boards who had secret income thresholds to decide whether to give students fee remissions or not. Roundtree, on the other hand, calculated the cost of the minimum dietary needs from an American working at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Professor W.O. Atwater, whose specialist area was human nutrition and energy, backed up by two nutritionists from Scotland. Fast forward half a century and the family expenditure study in Britain opened up more opportunities for scholars to define and measure poverty. The first major work conducted with this data was by Peter Townsend. 
In his pioneering work entitled Poverty in the United Kingdom, he argued that deprivation should not be seen only in terms of material deprivation, but also in the social exclusion from the ordinary patterns, customs and activities of society. Townsend writes, Poverty has often been defined in the words of an OECD review in terms of some absolute level of minimum needs below which people are regarded as being poor for purpose of social and government concern and which does not change through time. In fact, people's needs even for food are conditioned by the society in which they live and to which they belong. Just as needs differ in different societies, so they differ in different periods of the evolution of single societies. Any conception of poverty as absolute is therefore inappropriate and misleading. Now, I could go on for hours about the evolution of poverty research, but we clearly don't have time for that in this episode. So if we fast forward another half a century again, and we go to the Poverty and Social Exclusion Project based in the UK that I found through my Google search, they have a web page with different approaches to poverty. And this is where I feel like we are today in terms of how we define and measure poverty. So there are a few different approaches then to poverty. The consistent poverty measure, which combine different approaches to poverty measurement, in particular income and deprivation measures to provide what's called a consistent poverty measure. In the Republic of Ireland, for example, their anti-poverty strategy uses a consistent poverty measure that combines relative income with deprivation of one of eight basic necessities. Another example, the UK Child Poverty Act of 2010 combines relatively low income with material deprivation. It set a target to reduce less than 5% the proportion of children who live in material deprivation and have a low income. The second approach to poverty is the multidimensional poverty measurement. So poverty has most commonly been measured primarily in terms of income and of material and social deprivation, including more recently measures of social exclusion. But increasingly poverty is seen as a more multidimensional concept incorporating aspects of, for example, psychological well-being such as mental health and shame. This wider multidimensional view has, however, proved difficult to measure, in particular in a way that allows for comparisons across time. The third approach to measuring and defining poverty is the capabilities-based poverty line. The idea of capabilities has been developed by Amrita Sen and is concerned with people's ability to lead the life that they not only value but have reason to value. This extends beyond income to other aspects of people's lives. The problems with this approach have been to find ways to measure such a wide set of criteria. The fourth approach is a right-based poverty line. David Woodward of the London-based New Economics Foundation proposes a right-based poverty line, based on the level of income at which living standards consistent with economic and social rights are actually achieved in each country. The last approach is called the subjective measures of poverty. A number of studies have taken a subjective approach to poverty measurement, asking questions such as, Do they see themselves as being in poverty? Is their income below or a lot below what is needed or not? In this approach, people are asked to estimate minimum incomes to avoid poverty, though the exact wording of such questions varies considerably. So why is the definition, identification and measurement of poverty so important? 
Part of the answer lies in the fact that these figures matter. As a 2001 New York Times article by Louis Ischetel quoted, Whenever the question of the poverty data come up informally, said Robert Reich, who was President Bill Clinton's first Secretary of Labour, the consensus was not to change the standard for fear of the poverty rate looking worse. Although the present poverty figures, as Mr Reich put it, are almost meaningless. And yet we know there is poverty, and we need to measure it, and sell the numbers so somebody does something about it. Mary Morgan and I found this when we looked at the UN Intellectual History Project, which is a set of interviews that they did with UN, and especially UNDP, officials. How does one of the most influential institutions define and measure poverty, then? Mary and I were fortunate enough to interview Francis Stewart, one of the founders of the Human Development Index, HDI, and then the later Poverty Indices, the Human Poverty Index, and the Multidimensional Poverty Index. One of the moves within the UNDP at this time was to get definitions of poverty from poor people, or people close to poverty. As Francis Stewart says, People's priorities are quite often very different from what you might think. I mean, I did a little bit of this once in Zimbabwe, and, you know, their priority was actually, which was quite reasonable, not having to walk so far to fetch water, and they would walk, mm. like water infrastructure, way before educational health. Yeah. You know, but it's so much part of the international community's sort of prejudice that yeah. education and health should come first and not, yeah. not know, the physical, not, yeah. not the physical stuff. I mean, yeah. yeah, the physical stuff's there too. But if they'd been writing the poverty thing, they would say not having yeah. having not being able to walk to your water is much, is more important. The World Bank and the IMF were also trying to get the poor people involved in their definition of poverty, or rather they were trying to consult with people from developing countries about what poverty meant to them. One of the ways they did this is through the Poverty Reduction Strategy Papers, which were supposed to be written by the developing countries or the loan recipients of IMF and World Bank loans in order to find a strategy to reduce poverty. So I asked Francis Stewart if poor people were actually consulted and how much was actually the World Bank and the IMF involved? Huge amounts of help from the World Bank and the IMF. And when you read through them, we did an exercise once. I don't know if you came across it. I did a, wrote a paper with someone called RPR, uh, Do PRSPs Empower Poor or the World Bank or is it the other way around? <laughs> yeah. See, oh, that's a great question. Yeah, no, I did not come across that. Anyway. We, I mean, I had this great research assistant who went through all of these PRSPs, and the really ridiculous thing was they were totally identical, really? and they all had the same. Just a recipe. They were a recipe, and they had mm. a, the macroeconomic recipe of the IMF. Yeah. Can you imagine that all these poor people said, "What we really want is austerity. What we really <laughs> want is macroeconomic stability." You know, it was nonsense. But they did consult a lot of people, but then they synthesised it and they handled the consultations, and it ended up like I think a quite sort of farcical thing. Maybe they made a bit of a contribution. We'd rather have our school here rather than there, or you know that sort of micro decisions. Maybe they did make a bit of a difference. But uh, yeah, now we were struck by. Yeah, and, and and I feel like the 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 UNDP employees, which we have the globe, the oral histories for, they I think they understood that, which is why I've got the impression from it. But I think they thought that it was a success, just the sheer fact that they were there, because it meant that the IMF and the World Bank were actually, you know, on paper, 
kind of cared about this poverty. Do well, you, do you, that's would you why agree? I asked the question, did it empower the World Bank? Right, right. Because I felt that they had to do it in order to get legitimacy. You know, and that's, I think it, they're totally instrumental about consultation and so on. Both legitimacy and maybe implementation, I think they've learned that they can't get implementation unless local actors are on board, not necessarily the poor, but local actors. <laughs> Um, so yeah, they think it's important as <coughs> So it's legitimacy right. for the World Bank in the country. Yes, yeah. and also more widely, like yeah. legitimacy with you and me, that yeah. we feel they haven't got the right to go yeah. around yeah. throwing their weight down. But they still do it all the time, so it's not, you know, it hasn't really altered things. But if we take Francis's word on this, that the IMF, the World Bank, the UNDP are writing the poverty reduction strategies for the developing countries are defining poverty according to our Western values, then that's problematic, especially as Frances put so wonderfully herself. There is a sort of philosophy which is rather Western that we all know which way we want to go. I mean, you never take gender. Yes. We never consider for a minute that we should take the values of a lot of countries seriously about gender that everybody should be, you know, that's putting our values on. And there's a real dilemma, of course, we like our values. Or I remember once giving a talk about infant mortality rates. And they say, why do you take reducing infant mortality rates as good? You know, I thought everyone would take it as good, you know. (laughs) But there are, I mean, there are values we're imposing, which are Western values, even if we don't think they should still be like Denmark. But we do think they should be like Denmark, it's just that we know that they're going to have to go a bit slowly. Another issue that came up in our interview with Francis, which I'd like to share with you, was about the fact that there's more research on defining poverty than about combating it. And I think one of the problems which I've noticed about measurement is that people really regard measurement as a substitute for thinking about what to do about it. And and that's, I mean, it should be an indicator that something needs to be done. But if you, you know, go through the literature, you'll find so many papers on how to define poverty. Um, many more papers than any profound papers on how to cure poverty. Mm. Yes, it is. It's a, it's, it's yeah. a substitute, isn't it? De- yeah. De- define, um, define and measure is a substitute for really figuring out how you... Exactly, and on the same on inequality. There's mm. massive, massive literature yes. and precisely and wonderful debates about how you should do yeah. it exactly and this, that and the other. You know, and they're very high-powered debates, but... So poverty is clearly something we have and will study for a long time. Just hear this interview that Christina Lascaridas and I did last year with Stephen Marglin of Harvard University. In response to a question about how he ended up with the theoretical views in economics that he has today, he started telling a story about rural poverty in India. Here's a short snippet of that story. I went to India because I really didn't want to start you know, teaching yet. I wanted to learn more about the world, and I had an opportunity to go there, and it was, in theory, to, to teach benefit-cost analysis, which is what I, you know, I'm not to teach it, but to introduce it in the Indian Planning Commission. Uh, the Indian Planning Commission was not terribly interested in benefit-cost analysis, which suited me okay, because I really got interested in why uh, Peasants didn't adopt new techniques that were available to improve agricultural productivity. I really got interested in that question. Um, 
And I found a graduate student, an Indian graduate student, not in economics and literature, um, really by accident. And um, he was from a village, and he offered to take me to his village and you know, I could talk to the folks. Um, well, that led to uh, a project. Project is a little bit grandiose. It led to a, an informal thing because they all said, yeah, we'd like to try all these things, but we don't know how to do it. Well, did they really mean that or were they just being polite or, you know, what was going on? So I said, okay, I will get you, the, you know, they, they said, well, we can't get the fertilizer, we can't get the pesticides, we can't get these things, they're not available. So Stephen Marglin's story here proves the argument that Sen makes about famines, that it's not a question of lack of food, but rather the lack of access to food, which was the beginnings of Sen's capability approach that I talked about earlier in this episode. My question after all this, though, is do we really need to define poverty at all? The other thing that the Mahdi Sen makes very powerfully in that idea of justice book, and I'm not sure he's completely right, but he does say you don't have to define justice to know whether something is more just or less just. I mean, where I have a little bit of departure from him is you could be going in the wrong direction. You know, you might think, yeah, do a bit of poverty alleviation, that must be good, when in fact you ought to be doing something very structural. Mm-hmm. which you wouldn't be thinking about because you're not thinking about the end products. Can we then say that society is moving in the right direction towards less poverty without knowing exactly what that is? Examples all over the world indicate that the answer would be no. For example, China is making a push to fight poverty by defining a poverty line a little higher than the dollar a day which the World Bank initially came up with. As mentioned earlier, Stuart insists that measurement helps you focus your efforts, especially the regional focus. The newer multidimensional poverty approach, says Stuart, measures depth of poverty in different things, income, health, housing, etc., which means you can look at each individual because it's based on a survey. The MPI. The MPI is the Multidimensional Poverty Index, which was developed in 2010 by the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative and the United Nations Development Programme which Stuart was involved in. The MPI is great because you can geographic, you can disaggregate it by region, and even in some places by village, and mm. so you can really target very precisely. And you have many more, potentially, I mean, the actual HPI is used, MPI is used in the UNDP, doesn't have all that many different uh, elements, I don't think, but potentially you can have a huge number. And then you can pick up where you're really weak, you're really weak on housing, or you're really weak on this or that. And the other thing which is really neat about the MPI is that you can see in, whether an individual is deprived in multiple dimensions. Whereas the HPI simply says the country as a whole is deprived by so much. And then the, uh, the dollar a day simply says the country as a whole, or you could say individuals are deprived by just money. But here you can not only say that all the individuals are deprived by money and housing and health and whatever, but also that some individuals are deprived on health and money and this. And the, the, the theory is that if you're multiply deprived, you are really depri- much more deprived than if you're just deprived on it's one element. Because you can use the proportion of people on each, on each of these 10, whatever it was, 
Well, you can actually, you're, in theory, you actually identify the particular individual. Oh, really? In theory? Not just the proportion. Well, in, in some of these statistics, yeah, yes. Can. I mean, I don't know that the oh, UNDP see, level. The, the survey system. Yeah, the surveys the enable survey you to identify yeah. whether an individual is deprived yeah. on health, education yeah. and housing. Yeah. Or just one of them, or two of them, or three of so them. So this is a survey, though, so it's the There's proportion. So, yes. Sorry, so it's a, some some proportion of the population. So, I mean, if it's a survey, then it's representative a representative survey of the population. Yes. So. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. in principle, yeah. yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the, I mean, it's a huge progress compared yeah. with the yeah. uh, mm-hmm. HPI. I mean, when you just see it. In the UNDP, it doesn't appear like that. It just appears like a number. Yeah. And actually, the number's not all that different from the HPI if no. you do a correlation. But it, you need to break it down to be able to... So you really need to be able to break it down yeah. to see its charms. So the, really, at a global level, it's okay, but it's not so It's not so valuable. It's nice to have it. It's much more It's at a national local. level where it's really yeah. valuable. What is nice is, at a, at a country level, you can see where your big failures yeah. are. Yes, no, no, I. It's not. Yeah. It may not be so no. easy to handle globally, but if you suddenly see we're doing fine on everything, but we don't register anybody. Yeah. No, no. Which is actually the conclusion we came to in our paper was the only use of this is bottom up, right? It's only useful really at the ground level in the countries, but also because particular groups can go and lobby on. Mm their particular indica- an indicator. The only other thing, I mean, that's not so much the multiple indicators, but having these indicators is very valuable. If things suddenly turn around in a negative yes. way, which yeah. I think they may do, yeah. I think it's a wake-up call to yeah. see that that's okay. happening. Yeah. And if a whole host of these indicators... And in particular, I mean, if you took the MDGs, yeah. there was quite a lot of numbers. And what was yes. apparent sort of halfway through was that things were progressing, but maternal mortality wasn't. And okay. there was real action on maternal So halfway through between the, the 2000-2015? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. And there was a sort of wake-up call and people did... And I, and I think it turned around a bit by the end and it had done better. So it was a very good way of just seeing, you know, Keep, where you're so failing. Yeah. So the, 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 tracking in, the tracking aspect of the indicators is quite important. Yeah, exactly. And then the multiple. I mean, if one thinks development is multiple and ill-defined, it's That's good what to you have want. multiple no, no, I agree. indicators. I just, <laughs> and I can also see that actually the interesting thing about some of these indicators um, are, although they're indicators rather than measurements, they actually might have closer relation to getting back to a cause than some of the other things. Right? Yes. So the causes of your income are very difficult to get at. But the causes of infant mortality, if you, if you have an infant mortality regress, then you know where to start looking actually um for turning that one around so yeah the the the, the more fine-grained the indicators are the more actually they may give you something but as mary morgan asked in our interview with francis stewart who gets to decide what these things are so in the context of deciding these things that get measured the things that get put in now we you know you've told us about the hti but you've you've worked in a variety of these institutional spaces and across them so when you think about you know where where does the power to make the decisions about the measurements the numbers really really happen i mean it seems to be very dispersed if you're a scholar like us looking Mm. looking in on it you know you got you have these institutions like the world bank and the imf and the un and the un's arms and then you have a series of development institutes who seem to also have a really a big stake in how things get done and what things get done and what things get decided 
and it's it's so it's a quite an interesting tarot map actually if one was trying to kind of as a social scientist say okay well who's deciding this here <laughs> no it is very interesting and who actually decides i mean i for europe oecd is very powerful To find out more about Mary Morgan and my work on the UN and measurement, development and poverty, see our recently published article in the History of Political Economy Journal. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For all the links and books and people that we've mentioned in this episode, check out our website, Cetrus Never Paribus. Featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Mid-Air Machine, and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Nobel Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website, cetrusneverparabus.net, for more information. Follow us on Twitter, cetrusnparabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.